Good morning, loved ones. So good. Good morning, Cash. Love it. So good to see you all today. So much to be excited about. Uh, first of all, just uh, I'm so thankful for our just these some of these songs. The song that we sang just before the the table was was a beautiful way to pull us into the celebration, the celebration of the cross and the resurrection. Um, then ha- having Jana read scripture today with all that uh, she's been through over the last year with her health and uh, to see her and speaking with boldness and uh, conviction, those words from First Corinthians was another excite- exciting thing, thinking of uh, being able to uh, let people know where we stand uh, as people of Jesus. And thank you for that reminder, David. Uh, so many good things. I'm so, so thankful uh, for what God is up to in the lives of so many here, what he's up to in our church family, what he's up to in our community, the excitement of what God has done through Eden Village uh, is, is absolutely phenomenal, and he's not even done yet. And to see... Uh, not only that he's still at work right here in Springfield, and we're hoping and praying with you that there will be more than one Eden Village. There will be Eden Villages in Springfield, but also in these other cities. That's, that uh, is so exciting to hear, and we can thank God for his work. Um, next week, uh, Preston Hammett, our uh, youth minister, is going to be preaching to you. I'll be... Um, helping with a retreat uh, down in Searcy and uh, for college students. And I'm excited about that opportunity and excited also to be able to worship with my children on Sunday morning next week, which I haven't done in a long time. Uh, so that will be fun for us uh, to be able to be a part of the retreat and then part of worship. And it's going to be fun for you to be able to hear from Preston Hammett. Preston preached for several years uh, right out of college before he became a youth minister down in Brenham, Texas. And um, I've enjoyed so much talking to Preston and hearing his excitement for the Word of God and uh, the ways that he articulates. it. He is a student. He loves to get into Scripture and really uh, wrestle with it. And so I know that next week's going to be a great thing for, uh, for all of you to be able to receive that. So we are in our uh, new series, Everyday Mission. And uh, we are talking about, in this series, we're talking about a way of life. A way of life, a way of living, a way of sharing life in Jesus that is not dependent on an official church program for mission. You are the missionaries. We are the missionaries on this mission given to us by the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus himself. It's a great privilege for us to be a part of this mission. Uh, The phrase that I hear, I I think I've heard Rob say it a thousand times in the last 16 years. Uh, We are created to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And this mission is is part of that. We're going to talk in in coming weeks about practical day-to-day ways that we engage in this. Uh, So what I want to do is be able to, even now, kind of relieve the pressure from you to think that what I'm talking about is you pulling out a tract 
and leading people through some kind of Bible study or going door to door or getting on a corner with a bullhorn. We're not talking about that kind of mission. We're going to talk about an everyday kind of mission. We're talking about how the Lord sends us from this gathering as his people. This is an important part of being the people of God. Gathering together to build each other up, to worship together, to to remind each other where we stand and who has first stood with us. Who's first stood with us, given us new life, and now calls us into this big, wonderful mission of his to love and serve and rescue the world. And what we want to concentrate on, we get together, we have our two hours, maybe three hours a week to be the gathered church, but we're concentrating on the 165 to 166 hours that we are the sent church. And that's what this is about. Uh, This past week, I saw the movie 1917 with several other young guys here from church. It was a, tr- a tremendous movie. It's the, it's the story. It's the World War I era story of two young British soldiers, Lance Corporals Blake and Schofield. That's Blake on the left with the helmet helping up Lieutenant Schofield. And they are tasked with a mission that seems absolutely impossible. They're given orders by a general who says to them, I want you to go into enemy territory. You're going to have to cross through enemy territory and deliver a message to another British regiment who is going to attack at dawn the Germans, not knowing that that British regiment is stepping into a trap that's been set up by the Germans. The Germans have retreated wanting to pull the British regiment into this area of land so that they can then unleash a large-scale artillery ambush. And this regiment has 1,600 British soldiers in it. And to make the mission even more heightened and more difficult and more desperate, Lance Corporal Blake's brother is among those in those 1,600 soldiers about to step into the ambush. And if you don't get the message to the colonel of the British regiment by dawn, calling him, telling him to call off the attack, they will step into an attack and they'll be wiped out. And this is the mission. So Schofield and Blake begin to cross no man's land. No one has control of this land. And then they reach an abandoned German trench. And as they're moving through the trench, knowing that it can provide a faster way to get to the other side, through enemy territory and then to the British regiment, they come through an underground barrack. While they're in the underground barracks, they find this stash of food, canned food, and they begin to put some in their backpacks, and they begin to want to eat it right then and there. But, of course, it's the trenches. It's 1917, and there's a rat in the barracks as well. And as they stuff their backpacks with some food, 
they also notice a booby trap tripwire on the ground leading into the next tunnel. And they see it, but rats don't know it's a tripwire, and the rat triggers it. And there's an explosion, and then suddenly this underground barracks begins to cave in. Schofield is completely buried. Blake digs him out, pulls him up out of the rubble. He coughs up a bunch of dirt and plaster. He pulls him up as the barracks begin to crumble all around them, and he drags him through the trench out the other side into a field. Schofield is still coughing. He can't see. He's pouring water. They're drinking water on his eyes to wash out the dirt. And they've just narrowly escaped death. And Corporal Blake says, I wish I'd shot that rat. Schofield says, well, I wish you'd picked some other idiot to join you on this mission. Blake says, what? Why in God's name did you have to choose me? Blake says, well, I didn't know what I was picking you for. Schofield says, no, you didn't. You never know. That's your problem. Blake says, all right, then go back. Nothing's stopping you. You can go all the way home if you want. And then Blake says, I didn't know what I was picking you for. I thought they were going to send us back up the line or for food or something. I thought it was going to be something easy, all right? I never thought it would be this. So do you want to go back? And of course, they continue with the mission. Last week, we identified some obstacles that we face in our mission In our everyday mission, obstacles like fear, obstacles like not wanting to offend, obstacles like not knowing what to say in in an argument that might turn scientific or philosophical, all these obstacles that we could come up with, sometimes to us, it seems like an impossible mission. We know it's important. We know that we need to do it. We know that we need to to go into a a different territory, that there is risk involved, and we're just not sure if we really want to do it. In fact, we can find ourselves very much like Blake and Schofield. We can go, I thought it was going to be something easy. I thought it was going to be something different. You're telling me it's this? Why didn't you pick somebody else? Haven't you been in a mission before, in an active service, in some kind of ministry, and you've thought that, you've even maybe said that to Jesus? What did you have to pick me for? I thought it was going to be something easy. But here's the thing, and I want to, to remind us of this today. It's going to be our focal point, and, and this is the thing that's going to continue to carry us over the next several weeks. We are reminded that God has gone before us in power. He has gone before us in power, and He has equipped us with power and filled us with power. So when we think back to last week's text, we've left off a verse that I want to begin with as we go into our text for today. The command that is unmistakable when he sends them, the disciples out from Matthew chapter 28 before he returns to heaven. The command that's unmistakable is to make disciples. 
As we said, go into the world could be a command. It's a participle. It could mean as you go. It's probably both. But the unmistakable command in this, in this last commission of Jesus is the commission to go and make disciples. Make disciples. That's unmistakable. Disciples make disciples. It's not just go make a difference. Go make a difference in the world. It's go make disciples. It was the main ministry of Jesus, and he pours himself into these 12, and they then in turn pour themselves into others. Luke even records that it's more than just the 12 that get a practice mission during the ministry of Jesus. There are 72 that he sends out, two by two, kind of like Blake and Schofield going out together. This is something that Jesus envisions for them. He's, he is focused on shaping Here's the ministry of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Jesus is focused on shaping a particular kind of person. The kind of person who looks and feels and wills and thinks and loves and serves and practices life like Jesus himself. So he says, go baptizing them teaching them everything I've commanded you. It is, after all, the good life. It is, after all, the abundant life. It's the best life imaginable. We have the best possible news. Go and share this. Shape people into the kinds of people that you yourselves are becoming. Everyone's being discipled. Just remember that. Everyone in the world is being discipled right now. You are being discipled. Every single person. It's not a matter of whether we're going to be discipled and shaped and formed. It's never a matter of that. It's going to be by whom and into what. It's always that. And so he's calling us into this mission. Baptizing and teaching. Dallas Willard refers to this as being immersed into the God life. Go and immerse them into the God life. Baptism is is an essential part of this. Teaching is an essential part of this. Go And baptizing and teaching, this is what it's about. Let them know. But then in verse 20, this verse here is, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's one of the forgotten verses sometimes with this. It's, it's, it's forgotten that it's also meaning us, not just the twelve. I will be with you to the end. To the very end, I will be with you. This is called a commission because it is a commission. We're doing this together so that when he sends us out, it's not like he's waving goodbye from a distance. Even though he's going into heaven, he's not waving goodbye saying, Good luck! which is exactly what the general told Blake and Schofield when he gives them the impossible mission. Good luck. We don't need luck, my friends. We need the power of God going before us and going with us. So then how is it that they have power? If, if Jesus is waving goodbye going back into heaven, but he says, I'm going to be with you always, what does he mean? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a reminder of this. He says, you will receive power. This was before he had left. It was before he had gone into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, the ones who speak of what you've seen and heard. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. 
It was uh, another way of saying, go in the love of the Father, the authority of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Go. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really interesting. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. He's the reminder. He's the intimate presence of Jesus who's not only with them but in them. In, in many of Paul's letters, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives gifts for the body of Christ. And the, the Spirit is the agent of change and transformation within the individual and within the church. The, the Spirit is the agent of power who brings people that are different together to be one. But in Luke-Acts, the Holy Spirit is power for mission. He is the one who is, is, is going all the way with the people, with the disciples, and he is in front of them. So when Jesus says, go and I will be with you always, he means he is going to be in us and with us through this power of the Holy Spirit. He is present. He is not sending us into this mission on our own with our best wisdom with our best resources, He is sending us with His power. So this everyday mission that He's called us into, that we get to be a part of, is not something that we are powerless for. We have power through the Holy Spirit who is at work to help us carry out the mission that we've been given. This is incredible stuff. This is, part, this is good news for us. So our text today is in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read uh, the first 22 verses together, and I'll read the story, and then I, this, is, this is where I want us to pick up some things as we take them with us this week into our everyday mission, some things that we must notice. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. So a centurion being the commander of a of hundred men, and oftentimes there were more uh, as well that he was in charge of. Cornelius and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send, me, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. You see, you just can't say, say Simon. There's a lot of Simon, so it's Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened. And something like a, a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, he's still thinking about it, by the way. He said that back in 17, now in 19. He's still thinking about it. What is going on here? The Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the man, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest, and the next day they start out for Joppa. This story, I, I love this story. Uh, it, it's a really good story for us to encapsulate here today a lot of what is happening throughout the book of Acts anyway. Here's the first eight verses with Cornelius praying and receiving a vision from God. Um, it's in the form of an angel. And he says, essentially, Cornelius, I just want you to know God has noticed you. God has noticed you. God sees you. He sees your life. And he knows, he notices you. So, go send men to Joppa. Get Simon, who's called Peter, and have him come back here and give you a message. I've got something for you. And then in verse 9, it picks up with Peter. And Peter is praying on the rooftop. And he's in the midst of his prayer when a vision comes to him. And the vision for him is, Peter, I've got someone coming to see you. And uh, what, what's happening here is he is first getting a vision from the Lord, and it's just a picture. It's this sheet with all kinds of animals and food here coming. And he says, okay, get up, Peter. Get something to eat. And he, it, he says, no, 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 I've never eaten anything that's unclean. That's, I've always stayed within the law when I eat. Don't call anything unclean that God has called clean. And that happens to him three times when the men from Cornelius come. And Peter's wondering what all this vision stuff means, and then the spirit, it's as if, like, the vision hasn't sunk in yet. What, what's really happening here? And the spirit has to nudge him. Come on, Peter. This is what's happening. I've sent these guys to you. So they come, and he sees them and recognizes that it is God who has set up this appointment. God is the one who is at work to stir up things in Cornelius. And God was the one who was at work to stir up things in Peter. And interestingly enough, the bigger nudge has to go to Peter more than Cornelius. 
It's Peter that has to be convinced. Come on, Peter. These guys have come. I've sent them. You're supposed to go with them. Let's get going. It takes a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Not just a vision, but now a nudge from the Holy Spirit. One thing I want us to think about here. This vision for Peter comes in the midst of prayer. This is something I've talked about before. The vision for Peter comes in the midst of prayer. Remember, Peter is, he's working from tradition and scripture that there's a certain way that the people of God, the Jews, the Israelites, deal with Gentiles. Uh, and one of those things, you don't, you don't eat with them. You, you don't want the corruption of the world to rub off on you, so you keep your distance. Interestingly, he'd already seen Jesus eat with sinners in his own ministry. But it took an event. It took a vision and it takes the Holy Spirit's prompting for him to really begin to notice and understand what this means. He's in the midst of prayer when the vision comes. And this is oftentimes the way it is for us. Uh, although sometimes what we want to do is we want, a, we want to get a vision for our lives or get a vision for church or get a vision for a class or, or get a vision for a life group or some kind of ministry. And we want the vision and then we go and pray over it. But what happens here and is an example of other places throughout the story of, of the church in Acts is that most of the time the vision comes and the direction comes when the people are already gathered to pray. Or in this case, an individual is praying to God. It's prayer and then download a vision. And so oftentimes we want it the other way around. We want to come up with a vision and then say, "Go, hey God, would you please bless this? So how about we start like this? And this is what happens with Peter. Second thing I want us to point out here is that the mission is God's idea and desire before it's Peter's. The mission is God's idea and desire. This is something I keep in mind uh, as, as I'm interacting with, with my friends who are not church friends. I do not have to convince God to love my friends who don't yet know him, yet, don't yet know him. I don't have to convince him. I do not have to twist God's arm to make God notice them. God notices them. God has already noticed them and already loved them and already sacrificed them because Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, our friends who do not yet know his love, who do not yet know his gift, who have not yet been able to share life in him the way that we have. We don't have to convince him to do it. It is his idea. It is his desire. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to convince Peter to get going in this thing. Peter shows up later on in verses 23 to 33. Peter shows up and Cornelius immediately bows down to Peter. You know, what, if, what if Peter's another angel? He doesn't know who Peter is. He just knows there's a man named Peter. He's coming, and it's an important message. God has made this happen to him. So he bows down to Peter, but Peter says, I'm just a man. Stand up. It's okay. Peter knows he does not have inherent power to do anything about this centurion's life. He doesn't have power in himself. He's going to be dependent on a different power, on a power of God, on the power of the Holy Spirit. 
If he's just depending on his own humanity, he doesn't stand a chance. If he's depending on the power of the Spirit, then something's going to happen. In verses, 10 to thir- uh, in verses 30 to 33, <laughs> this, is what, this is what the centurion says. We're all here. This is what happens. He tells, he tells Peter what happened, and now he says, and now here we all are. We've, we sent for you. You've come. Here you are in our home. And now here we all are in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. When the moment is right, he is open and receptive and ready to receive. Here we are. Here we are. Cornelius is fearing. He's seeking. He's practicing. And he recognizes that God has put this together. Then Peter preaches. His message is about Jesus, God's good news in the form of Jesus, who's Lord of all, how he anointed Jesus to, and through the Spirit and went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He tells them that the Jews had killed Jesus, but God had raised Jesus from the dead. He just tells them the story of Jesus. He says, and, and then after he was raised from the dead, we saw him, we ate with him, and he commissioned us to preach. He gave us this mission to go and preach. So that's what I'm doing right now in the middle of me telling you about preaching. I'm That's what I'm doing. And then he says, everyone who believes in him has forgiveness of sins through his name. And bam, here he comes. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Cornelius and his family while Peter is still in the midst of his sermon. He can't even get the rest of the story out. He can't even say, and therefore, this is what it doesn't mean. He's not even unpacking things yet, giving in interpretation and application like any good preacher would try to do. He's not even doing that. He's in the middle. Of, I would love to see that. That would be really cool. In the middle of the sermon, in the middle of the sermon, here's the Holy Spirit, and Peter just says, well, they've got the Holy Spirit. We might as well baptize them. You know, the Spirit's come on them just like he did on us. So let's go. And he baptizes them. And here is in Caesarea, boom, the emergence of the church. The plan that God had already been working on before Peter even knew it. Which brings us to the third part of this story. And it's the title of today's sermon. God is already there. God is already there. What would happen in our everyday mission lives if we believed God was already there? What would happen? What would it look like in those everyday places? Remember what we talked about last week. We're talking about in the, in the eating, in the working, on the soccer field, in the marketplace, at the mall, at school, in our neighborhood. Whatever those, those places where we're doing our living What would it look like if we believed that God was already there and that he cared so much about people who do not yet know his love that he's at work somehow, some way to bring them into relationship or at least to tell them maybe part one of this grand story that we live in? What if we really believed and didn't just think about this on the occasion of a sermon when we're talking about it, but actually believed this and, and, was, and were committed to believing this every day. God is already out there. Um, this means 
that we do not take God to the people because God is already there waiting on us. And oftentimes we think in mission that we're, that we're taking God to the people. Uh, have you ever heard that phrase, um, you know, if God would just show up? We just need God to show up. Lord, we just need you to show up. So we pray for God to show up. It seems to me that God's there and that what he really needs is for his people to show up. It just seems to me that in the book of Acts and probably the whole Bible, most of the time, God is there at work, moving, working, so that people can see more of him, can see a revelation of the kind of God he is, so that he can work to rescue, to save, to bless, to pour out abundant favor, to do something to reveal himself to the people. And he's there and he's at work. The question is not, will God show up? He showed up in a big way in Jesus Christ. The most amazing way. And he's shown up again through the Holy Spirit among those and in those and for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And now the question is, will the people of God show up and join God in what he's already doing in the world to reveal his love to, to this world? Will the people show up? In Acts chapter 8, we have another story of this. It's the Ethiopian official who's on his who's on his way down but before this we're told that an angel tells Philip go down by the, the by the Gaza road I want you to take that road he takes the road and then there's a chariot over here he says okay go over there and stand by that chariot you mean that chariot where there's just one guy over there you mean just go over there and stand yeah go over there and stand by the chariot okay he goes over just two guys in a desert standing there by the chariot. So, he's kind of alone. He's reading Isaiah. You know what you're reading? No, I don't know. When I'm, how could I unless really somebody explains it to me? So he unpacks it. And the Spirit brought Philip to that spot. They have a moment. There's an understanding. There's belief. There's baptism. And as soon as they come out of the water and the baptism's done, the Spirit takes Philip out of that place and drops him in another spot. Now, that'd be cool, too. But God is the one who's orchestrating that meeting. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions want to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit says, nope. So then they say, okay, we're going to go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says, nope. So then that night, he he's, has a dream. And in the dream, there's a person from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. says, okay, we're supposed to go to Macedonia. Let's go to Philippi. He gets to Philippi. They're looking for a place to pray. They go down by a river. And here's a woman named Lydia. She's a, she's a prominent woman in the community. There's some other women. They start talking to them. And they start preaching the message. And it says in Acts chapter 16, 14, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. You're not the only one who's at work. God is at work. He wants this more than we do. 
He wants to rescue. He wants to save. He wants to bless. He wants people to know his love and and to see a little bit more of a glimpse of Jesus and the kind of God he is. He wants this more than we do, and Jesus is proof. He's opening people's hearts. He's at work in the world. So here's the soul training practice for this week. As he gives vision in the midst of prayer, as he is the one who's already created the mission that we're a part of and has said, come on, do this with me. It's a co-mission. And as he is already there at work, here's our soul training practices. Number one, practice spiritual conversations. Sometimes the obstacle for many of us is that we're just not used to having spiritual conversations. We don't know how to do this. Practice those in your home. Parents, this is part of your job, is to train your own children in spiritual conversations. But there needs to be practice at home, you and them. Practice what it means to talk about God in everyday life. As you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up, as you decorate your home, that kind of thing. Practice that. Number two, And this is the big one for you this week. Ask God to show you where he is working. And then ask for the courage to join him in it. Because you're going to be tempted like Corporals Blake and Schofield to go, I thought it was going to be easy. Shouldn't we just go back? And so ask God to show you. And and do this throughout the day. Maybe you even want to set a timer on your phone through the day. And have a little reminder, a little alarm that says, okay, it's time for me to pray this prayer. Lord, will you show me in this moment today where you're at work? And then give me the courage to join you. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing a song about who this world belongs to. It's it's an older hymn, This Is My Father's World. Uh, I requested it because while the first two verses in particular talk about our surroundings and and nature, verse 3 reminds us that this world belongs to God. Jesus is Lord of this world. He is the one. He reminds us that the battle's not over. The mission is not over. He reminds us, though, that he is in charge, that there there is a God that we serve. There is. There is a spirit who inhabits us that has made us and equipped us prepared to join him in his mission. So we're going to sing this song as a reminder to remind each other and to declare to God himself that this this world belongs to him. He's already in it. He's already working. The question is, will we join him in his work to love the world? And if you need to respond, perhaps for the first time, as we've seen today, with faith, with baptism, Perhaps uh, for you, it's just you want to pray with somebody to say, I want more courage. I'm facing my obstacles, and they're, and they're winning, and I don't want them to win anymore. I want in on the mission. Maybe you just need that courage. So we invite you to respond as we sing this song together.